0: Job chapter 25. This is Bildad's final speech. The writer says, quote, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? God. Or how can he be made pure, who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, who is a maggot, and a son of man, who is a worm. We come to the shortest chapter in the book of Job. This is Bildad's third and final speech, and what it lacks in theology, it makes up in brevity. And I know that for many of you, this is the perfect kind of speech. One that is short, sweet, and to the point. This is the last time, by the way, we will hear from Job's friends Until the closing of the book, except for one small little parenthetical note, Bildad expresses his belief that Job's sufferings are somehow linked to Job's pride. And remember that Bildad is kind of the voice of tradition. In this short chapter, Bildad's focus is on God's justice in verses 1 through 3. And then God's power in verses 4 through 6. But he's going to ask an important question. How can a man be made acceptable to God? How can a person be declared righteous? How is it possible for God to accept anyone? What has to happen for a person... To not have to ponder the painful possibility of rejection by God. How can a person know? How can they know? How can they know that they know that they know that they won't be rejected by God, but that they'll be accepted by God? Warren Wearsby comments quote, it is disturbing to see how Job's friends speak so knowingly about God, when in the end, God revealed that they really didn't know what they're talking about. Too often, those who say the most about God know the least about God, unquote. Isn't that true? Because you know people who spend almost all of their lives reading books about the Bible and going to church. And they seem to know so little, little, little about the character of God. Wearsby quotes the famous B.F. Westcott. You have his picture. He's that old man that, yeah, that's him. He uh, was a translator of the Greek New Testament. And he wrote, quote, Every year makes me tremble at the daring with which people speak of spiritual things, unquote. It's one thing to talk about God and it's one thing to open up your Bible and it's one thing to say the things that are in the Bible and then have people draw exactly the opposite conclusion of what God is trying to say. If Job's friends have taught us anything, We have to be careful what we say. We have to be careful to refrain from making dogmatic assertions about what motivates God or why God does what God does without biblical evidence or support. God's power is inherent in God's nature in verses 1 through 3. And God's justice is the outworking of God's holy nature in verses 4 through 6. And Bildad gets that part right. The New Testament confirms that. God is light. In him is no darkness, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is holy and God is just. And so it makes perfect sense that Bildad would ask the question of how can mere human beings stand before him? Now remember Job's claim. Job isn't claiming to be a perfect person. He isn't claiming to be a sinless person. He's not claiming to be someone who's never done anything wrong. He simply refuses to confess to sins that he's never committed. And he refuses to believe that the judgment that has happened to him is related to that. And it won't take long for us to get to Job's reply as you can see. Look at verse one. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Or another way of reading this, dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. He sees what normal people see that our universe is an orderly universe. I know that Neil deGrasse Tyson, our famous cosmologist friend, has been dissing creationists lately. The Bible teaches that God establishes the mechanisms of the solar system and the universe. The Bible teaches that there's order if our sun and present position in the solar system is random, we still have no model that explains why some planets spin in one direction and others spin in the opposite direction. Most planets rotate in the same direction as their orbit, but not Venus, not Uranus, not Pluto. They Rotate in the opposite direction. And do you know what our evolutionary friends say. In explanation of that. They have no explanation. It's a mystery to them. Most evolutionary. Philosophical naturalists believe in what's called. The nebula model of the solar system. But. In our solar system, there are 72 known moons that should orbit planets in the same direction. Instead, eight moons have a backwards orbit. That includes Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They have moons going in one direction one way and in another direction another way. The astronomer's explanation? We have no idea. In his book, It Couldn't Just Happen, it says, quote, our universe is a cosmos, not a chaos. That means a confused mass or mixture. Most of you know what the word chaos means. The book says, quote, the word cosmos comes from the Greek word cosmos, meaning an orderly universe. It's because the universe is orderly that scientists can discover and describe the natural laws that govern it. Such laws have been found to govern everything from the behavior of atoms that make up all matter to the movements of enormous spinning galaxies. Only the delicate balance between nuclear forces and electrical forces and gravitational forces allows stars and planets to exist. The precise amount of gravity on earth allows us to walk around with flying, without flying into space. The methods of science and the very concept of science are rooted in the notion that this The universe is orderly. Scientists have found that our existence depends upon a great number of precise laws of nature. If the constants that govern these laws were even slightly different, life wouldn't exist. There's absolutely no margin for error. Where did these laws come from? Where do they originate? Cosmologists know that only very special and unique starting conditions could account for the development of an orderly universe. Actually, any starting condition marked by chaos moves towards more chaos, not order. A universe starting from chaos could never evolve into stars or galaxies or or life. The order and structure that scientists have described in laws such as the law of gravity exists only because that order was put in place at the very moment of creation, unquote. Isn't it? And, and so they think we're, we're the nut jobs. We're crazy because we th- think that chaos remains chaos, not order. And think about this. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, gives a worldview in which inquiry can be made into the very world in which you live. Bildad says, is there any number to his armies? In other words, can you count the number of angels? People have tried. They've speculated how many hundreds of thousands of angels can fit on the head of a needle. But here's what we know. That the armies of God are multitudes and multitudes. The book of Revelation describes the innumerable host of God being 10,000 times 10,000. It isn't just multiplication that they're talking about. They're talking about a number so vast that the number hasn't been invented. Upon whom does his light not rise? The implication being there is a light and Every person in every corner of every part of the planet earth experiences it. Bildad envisions a God of power and a God of peace and a God of perfection and a God of purity. And all of that is true. But as Bildad talks about a God of power and peace and perfection and purity... You know what's strange? Is the absence of a God of mercy and grace and compassion and love. You see, this is the truth. The Bible speaks of a God who loves you and cares about you and thinks about you. God does more than just interact with humanity. On the basis of blind justice. God does more than just keep an account of what you're doing every day. And what you're doing every night. God thinks about you. And his love for you. Again, McKenna writes, quote, our theology determines our anthropology. It's his way of saying what we believe about God is what we will believe about human beings as well. He writes, quote, therefore, an unapproachable God results in an unredeemable man. No matter what he does, righteousness and purity will escape him. All the frustration in man's quest for God prior to the advent of Christ comes into intense focus at this point. Bildad is half right. In what way? Man cannot redeem himself. That is true. But there's a God who can redeem Isaiah knew that we were all unclean. That our sin was like filthy rags. In Isaiah 64, 6 it says, We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The image is a strong wind that comes as leaves have fallen on the ground. And they blow in a particular direction. But Isaiah also sees a savior who can bridge the gap. Remember in Isaiah 53, 6... Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own separate way. But the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah sees a God who understands our difficult situation and wants to redeem us. So how good is man? Look what Bildad says in verses four through six in verse four. How then can man be righteous before God? What a legitimate question that is. How then can a man be made right? How can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine. Even in those particular days they understood that the glow of the moon, the light of the moon was a reflection from somewhere else. And the stars are not pure in his sight. In other words, Bildad is envisioning a world that is broken. A universe that is broken, that is scarred, that's been marred. How much less man who is a maggot. And a son of man who is a worm, make no mistake about it, when Bildad says these things, he means you, Job. He means you're the worm. You're the maggot. But Bildad's comparisons aren't insightful or even helpful, and certainly not hopeful. The moon and the stars are imperfect. So what else is new, Bildad? Human beings are imperfect. We know that. How then can a man be made righteous before God? I want to point something out to you. There's another Bible character who asks that exact same question. Who knows who? Jesus Jesus doesn't say it. Try again. It's David. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Bildad and David ask exactly the same question. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Bildad says he's a worm and a maggot. David says that God knows who you are and cares about who you are. His, It's really interesting to me how they could come to exactly the same, ask the same question, come to a different conclusion. David, David, in Psalm chapter 8, verse Three and four, he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Remember, David will write. That human beings have been made just a little lower than the angels. David senses the unique position of humanity in the universe, the exalted position of man, a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8, verse 5, and crowned with glory and honor. And I need to remind you of something. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the self-existent God, comes from heaven, and he takes on the nature, a new nature, a human nature. He doesn't become an angel. He doesn't become some other, cosmic being. He takes on the garb of a human being. There's something about you. There's something about you that he wants to forgive and that he wants to redeem and that he wants to reconcile to himself. Bildad's words are beautiful and brief But they lack sensitivity and compassion. And they're certainly not marked by love. And they don't really address the real issue that Job is facing. Bildad is right when he maintains that man is powerless to redeem himself. And Job may be wrong if he believes that he can stand before God in his own righteousness or his own blamelessness apart from Christ and apart from a sacrifice and apart from grace. But even if Job is wrong, if Job has even an ounce of righteous self-conceit, when Job finally meets the Lord, it disappears. You see, Job is willing to pray. Job is willing to ask God to be merciful to him, a sinner. Imagine if both Bildad and Job could fast forward from where they are in the text and they could go forward, forward into time, and then they find themselves in the New Testament period and they both find themselves in the temple and there they are with Jesus and Jesus is walking in and Bildad is saying, look at me how I keep all of your ordinances and I obey all of the rules and I'm not like this pitiful poor stinking homeless person right here. And Job is beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And look what Job says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26. But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? When he says that, how have you helped him who is without power? It's Job's way of saying what you're saying isn't really helpful. How have you helped him who is without power? Remember, there's someone needy, there's someone hurt, there's someone in trouble. How have you saved the arm that has no strength? The picture, of course, is a picture of paralysis, a picture of hurt. How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to so many to whom you have uttered words and whose spirit came from you? When he uses the expression, whose spirit came from you? The idea is, where did you get that? Where did you come up with that? Did you just make that up? Usually, people will appeal to some sort of authority. Who said that? Where did you get that? What Job is, in effect, saying to build that is that he's offering counsel, but it's counsel without comfort, it's advice without hope, it's instruction without compassion. Bildad's words have proven to be useless and even less than useless, harmful even. And so Job begins to give descriptions. In verses 5 through 13, we're going to read it quickly. It says, the dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Shaol is naked before him and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He draws a circular horizon on the face of the waters. At the boundary of light and darkness, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. When he says that the dead tremble, and those under the water, and those inhabiting them, remember Bildad has talked about the heavens, and now Job is going to talk about something underneath the heavens. When he says Sheol is naked before him, Sheol is a word in the Hebrew language that could mean the dead. Or the grave. Or hell. The King James translates this. Hell is naked before him. The NIV says death. The New Living Translation says the underworld. What's the picture? The picture that Job is giving is. God sees. Where the dead are. That death itself. The dirt that covers the death or the waters of the ocean that cover the dead. God is able to see them. In other words, here's what Job is saying. The place of the dead remains visible and knowable to God. He sees where they are and where they go. Remember, Bildad has described the power of God in the heaven. Job describes the power of God in the depths. Job points out that God knows where they are. And look what it says. And they tremble. In what sense? I'm going to suggest to you in the sense that the dead are aware. And the New Testament seems to bear witness to that. That when a person dies, they either go to the place of the righteous dead or they go to the place of the unrighteous dead. God knows everything. And in Job's day, people imagined that the dead inhabited an underground world in the center of the earth or deep, deep below the oceans of the waters or the depths of the sea. In verse 7 it says, he stretches out the north over the empty space. (laughs) Read it for yourself. He hangs the earth on nothing. 1800 BC. This is 1400 years before Ptolemy. This is thousands of years before Copernicus and Leonardo da Vinci. This is a poetic expression that God knows everything. He stretches out the north over empty space. Here's the idea. You go north, you go north, you go north, you go north until there is no more north. Remember, if you go north long enough, you're going to eventually start going south. You're going to come to the top of the world. Remember, we live on a planet. And if you go all the way to the North Pole and you keep going north, you're going to eventually start going south it's a poetic way of saying God knows what's beyond. When you get to the last step in the north and when you come to nothing, God knows what's there. If you go east, God knows what's there. If you go west, God knows what's there. If you go north south, God knows. God stretches out the skies. The picture is the atmosphere. He hangs the earth on nothing. How is that even possible? How can you suspend a globe and know how it sustains itself? God creates the earth, sustains the earth, maintains the orbit of the earth by his great power. And Job seems to understand that unless the Lord sustained the motion of the planets and the universe, if God didn't make the the earth turn on its axis, And all the rest of the planets and all of the rest of the stars, by his great power, reality as we understand it would cease to exist. Does Job not have an understanding of scientific knowledge? He has some understanding. Job describes. The power of God. And how does he know this? Doesn't it suggest to you that Job has thought long and hard about the world in which he lives? How in the world does he know about the cycles of evaporation and precipitation? How does he know about the density of clouds? How does he know about the cycles of light and darkness? How does he know about hydrology and the storms at sea? How does he know about the movement of the stars and the constellations? And as far as we know, this is the first mention that the earth maintains its orbit on nothing the upanishads don't contain that information the quran didn't contain that information all of the so-called holy writings of every single civilization didn't have that information william macdonald writes quote how immeasurably above the cosmogonies of the heathen philosophers are these Few grand words in them we have as a germ the discoveries of Newton and Kepler. It's a great mistake to think that scriptures do not teach scientific truth. It teaches needed truth. And even if it's not in scientific language, it still maintains scientific accuracy, unquote. When a person says to you, Well, you know, the Bible isn't a science book. They're right. But everything that it says about science is true. Well, the Bible is not a history book. You would be so wrong. The Bible is a history book. And the history that it contains is accurate. It's interesting to me how people are so quick to dismiss the Bible... But look what Job says in verse 8. He binds up the water in his thick clouds. Yet the clouds are not broken underneath it. Now imagine, again, you're not living in a world where there's nine news or CNN or, or the weather channel. Imagine you're just a kid and you're looking up into the sky and you see the clouds gather. And then all of a sudden gushing rain comes down and the clouds maintain their form. How did they get there? Where did they come from? Job says the Lord makes and controls. The formation of the clouds and the rain. Job knows that the clouds produce rain. That God stores water in the atmosphere. Until the atmosphere is ready to release the precious liquid. Job knows that the rain and water is essential for life. And he declares that God establishes and controls the laws of nature. The environment. And note Job's observations. Though heavy with rain, the clouds do not burst from the weight of the water. Isn't that amazing? He's God's first meteorologist. And look what it says in verse 9. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his clouds over it. Now, this is interesting because he has said God can look into hell itself. Into the place where the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, God is able to see what no one else sees, but He's able to cover what He doesn't want anyone to see. He covers His throne with clouds. This is an expression of power and control. God can uncover hell. God can cover or hide his throne. Some idiomatic expressions in ancient writers believe that what Job may be talking about as you see the course of the moon going through the sky. Some people believed that the moon was the throne of God. That God dwelt on the moon. I'm going to suggest to you that the idea is way more than that. That Job understands that God can cover his presence with clouds in order to protect creatures. In other words, imagine. I'm going to take you to a place maybe some of you have been. You've dreamed about heaven. You've thought about what it would be like. The day that you show up and you see the fiery presence of the living Lord. There is this brightness that is immeasurable and overcomes and the idea is that god full of light and blazing glory hides his incomprehensible holiness so that even the angels and the beings in heaven aren't consumed by the brightness of his of of the effulgence of what the the theologians call the sum and the substance of all that he is there's a reason why god is invisible there's a reason why in the, in the Old Testament that Moses says, let me see your face. And he says to Moses, if you, if you saw me, you wouldn't live. He goes, here, I'll make you a deal. I'll stick you in that crevice in the rock. I will cover you with my hand. And then I'll walk backwards. And remember his face caught on fire. And it glowed. Not for a day not even for a week. Just that encounter made his face glow for a long period of time, so much so that Moses had to cover his face. I think he's talking about that God has the power to control and direct and manipulate everything, the sun, the moon, the, the stars and the sky. It's an expression of God's supreme Power over everything. In verse 10 it says, he draws a circle horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Think about what Job is saying. The earth is suspended in space. Clouds hold rain. Now Job says, look as far as you can possibly look into the horizon. Stand, if you will, at the very shores of the ocean and look at the circle of the horizon, circular. Job is intimating that the earth is a sphere at the boundary of light and darkness. If you've ever seen a globe or a picture of a globe, you can see the sun shining on one side and the darkness on the other side. The implication being God sets the boundaries of day and night. This also suggests boundaries For the limitations of the oceans, the waters, there's a point and a position where the waters can not go any further. And this is in accordance with the promise that the waters of the oceans wouldn't submerge the lands or cover the earth in Psalm 104, verse 9. Keep in mind that Job is making observations. He's looking at the world in which he's living. And he's saying... We're living on a sphere that's suspended on nothing, that circles around a great light. And look what it says in verse 11. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. What in the world does that mean? Let me give you a hint. God controls all creation. I'm going to suggest to you that the pillars of heaven are an idiomatic expression for volcanoes. Imagine if you go to Hawaii. Imagine if you go to Mount Etna. If you've ever seen a volcano, it looks like a pillar that reaches up to the sky. And if you watched in Washington when Mount St. Helens exploded, or you went and saw the movie Pompeii, and you see this volcano erupt and it explodes. It's breathtaking. It's awe inspiring. And sometimes it's tragic. Many of you are familiar with the incredible slide that took place in Washington. How a part of the mountain just literally detached and then it smothered a neighborhood and it was said that you could hear people crying from underneath the pillars of heaven, mountains, earthquakes, storms. Upheavals. Just a few days ago, the largest earthquake that's been recorded in modern times hit in South America, and another one hit today. One day ago, 8.3, today, 8.0. The quake was so powerful that you could feel it all over Central and South America. How fragile is the earth? How delicate are the things that hold it together. Look what it says in verse 12. He stirs up the sea with his power. And by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. Can God create storms? Yeah. Can God cause the plates underneath the ocean to shift ever so slightly like he did just outside of Japan. And create a tsunami that washes everywhere in the Indian Ocean and within six minutes, 250,000 people, gone, washed away. In Haiti, earthquake, 100,000 people, gone. God stirs up the sea. He creates storms. Look what Job is saying. God creates storms. God controls them, he calms them, by his understanding he breaks up the storm, verse 13, by his spirit he adorned the heavens, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent, the implication being everything that you see in the visible universe, if you look at the galaxies, and then the galaxies beyond the galaxies, the idea is that he decorates the universe like it's his own little private room. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. In what sense? In the sense that when the storms come, when the earthquakes hit, when the volcanoes erupt, when the animals are running for their life, God's able to capture them. And look what it says in verse 14. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how shall a a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Here's what Job is saying. We've only touched the very edges, the outer limits. These are the mere fringes of his way. This is a small whisper. Listen to what, what Job is saying. This is a tiny fraction. This is an infinitesimal part of God. Can you imagine what life would be like if he stopped whispering and he spoke out loud? That's what he's saying. The Amplified Bible says it this way. Yet these are but the outskirts of his ways, or the mere fringes of his force, the faintest whisper of his voice. Pause. If you think for a moment and consider, okay, think about it. Think about the subatomic world. Think about the world of atoms. And then think about the world of subatomic particles. Think about how electrons, Protons and neutrons and then go further and further down, smaller and smaller. How he maintains the integrity of matter itself and then look at the expansiveness of the universe in which we live. How do you explain it? How do you explain this God who can maintain the subatomic particles and maintain the universe? Think about the God who creates the most fragile flower and the fiercest storm. Think about the summer breeze that just delicately waves through your hair. And then the explosion of a super volcano. How do you explain the Amazon forest and the Sahara desert? How do you explain the beauty and complexity of creation and life? It makes even the most hardened atheist tremble. They want to maintain their philosophical naturalism and believe that you don't really need a God or if there is a God and God just simply gets all of reality going but then you see the proliferation of the stars. You see the magnificence of his creation and I'm going to suggest to you that even the most hardened atheist has a tremor, a little doubt Modern science has only scratched the smallest surface of the complexity that we call our universe. And again, I want you to think about what you're reading. I want you to think about the circumstances of where he is. Job is in a trash heap. He is hurt. He is weak. He is frail. And yet he knows... That there's a God who reveals His Majesty in creation, who reveals only a minute portion of His awesome glory and His great works. In Psalm chapter 19, if you just turn there real quick, we don't. I we just have just a little bit. I just want to share Psalm 19 verses 1 through 6 with you. In Psalm 19, you're going to be very familiar with it. I can't believe it. I just now I'm in Job and not Psalms. Psalm 19, listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. It's, it's David's way of saying, That when the sun comes up and the moon and the stars appear and they start to shine, their voice is heard everywhere. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 17. I have to share this with you. Look what it says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, who taught him the path of justice, who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding. Bildad asks the question What is man that thou art mindful of him? Maggot? Worm? David asks the question What is man that thou art mindful of him? And he sees through the eyes. Of his future son. A world lost, a world empty, a world hurt, a world isolated, a world on a trash heap. Bildad, we're nothing compared to God. It's true. Job, we're nothing compared to God. But he still cares for you. He cares for his people. He sees you. He sees you. For thus says the Lord, it says in Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord that created the heavens, God that formed the earth, He made it, He established it, He didn't create it in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Isaiah 45, 18. I am the Lord and there is no one else. God says, I created the earth. I formed it. I created it to be inhabited. The earth and everything in it and the people who are there and the lives that they live. They matter. This is why he sent Jesus. This is why he loves us so much. David's prayer turns to praise. In Psalm 31:19, David says, "Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for them that fear you." which have wrought for them that trust in you before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. It's an idiomatic expression again in the Hebrew. The picture is God creates a canopy, a pavilion, a place of protection to protect you from the heat of the day and from... From the the raging storm, God keeps his people in a place of relief and protection from their enemies who are in fortified cities. David sees a God who builds a world to protect you and to keep you safe until you come to your senses. So that you'll look up into the sky or you'll look down into the earth and you'll consider the world in which you you live and the universe in which you live. And you'll become overwhelmed all over again at his glory and his majesty. If you're wondering, is Job going to get even more interesting? The answer is yes. Look at that. See, I told you I could do two chapters and look. Look. It's communion time. So, Chet, come on out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we hear the sarcastic, caustic, bitter statements by people who don't know you and who don't love you, who believe that we just came from mud to man, molecules to human beings, Lord, when they try to humiliate us into thinking, what a bunch of idiots. Lord, we pray that like Job, we would have faith and confidence. That Lord, we would understand something. That even though sometimes we're hurt and sometimes we're weak and sometimes we're frail. That Job reveals the majesty of creation and reveals the glory of God. And that, Lord, when we're hurt and we're afraid and we're alone, that, Lord, we would remember your greatness, that we would remember your goodness, that we would remember your compassion, that we would remember, Lord, that you love us and that you care for us. And that, Lord, you've done everything necessary to redeem us and reconcile us and forgive our sin and that David's future son would come and die the death that we deserve and come back to life so that we could really be changed, so that we could have a new life and a new hope and a real future. And so again, Father, we pray that as we gather together, as we remember Jesus, that, Lord, you would awaken in our hearts a profound sense of gratitude and joy as we consider all that you've done. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would consider him? And then we see the history of redemption. We see the story of Jesus. We see the sacrifice On the cross, and we begin to understand something that whatever else you're doing, Lord, you're constantly, constantly thinking about us. In Jesus' name, amen.